and welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the show dedicated to stories told through the medium of sound, showcasing the diversity and vitality of modern audio theater. Here, here, news, reviews, discussion, and of course, stories. I'm your host, Fred. That great theme music is by Roger Gregg of Crazy Dog Audio Theater. Today we are continuing on our series of audio serials, uh, moving on from the world of zombiedom that we featured last week with We're Alive, to that of a far-flung future and perhaps even an alternate universe. It is the story Searcher and Stallion. Now this is a pretty fun show. It's been around for a while now, at least as long as I've been doing it, and probably longer. Um, Scott Creator Scott Howard recently actually re-released some of the origin stories, so I'm actually going to be playing you some of those, though there are something like 100 episodes out there if you start uh, poking around the website at searcherandstallion.com. Uh, so quick synopsis, the story is about a guy who wakes up with not much of a clue of what's going on around him, and eventually he gets a powerful suit that keeps him alive and a robotic companion, but... Uh, we are only in episode two, so, you know, I'm not going to start with the first one. Got to keep you guys on your toes, but um, we start with episode two. It features Searcher, the main character. He's trying to su- escape the strange place where he's awoken. He's still trying to get his bearings and uh, make some interesting discoveries in this episode. So stay tuned now for episode two of Searcher and Stallion, and stay tuned after the show for an exclusive interview with the creator, Scott Howard. We talked to him about creating this show and his transition from a electronic radio show show to radio drama. Over a century after the founding of the first interstellar colonies, Searcher awoke, alone, on a laboratory table with an ageless body and no knowledge of his past. Now, in his exoskel, a powered suit of armor, he roams the galaxy with his robotic companion Stallion, seeking clues about his unknown origins. Searcher and Stallion, page two of Dreams and Wings by Scott Howard. No time to waste. Which way out? All that matters is escape. He turns his attention downward, surveying the room below. Cold on his eyes, black, except for a handful of green emergency lights. The room is a locked square crypt. He swims down to the one and only exit door. Grabbing the handle, it easily spins to fully unbolt the door. With one hand pushing against the wall and the other pulling on the handle, the door pries open. A wrecked elevator blocks the lower half of the doorway. Its top piled high with a tangled web of cabling. He pulls himself into the blackness, up and over, squeezing past the doorframe. He starts to worm his way through the maze of cabling, hoping to find air above. Three quarters of the way through, he feels a tug, something pulling at him. 
he looks back to see his backpack entangled in a thatch of cables. He slides backward to start a second attempt through the maze, but the cables lock him in. Claustrophobia grips his chest, his heart and mind racing. He tears and thrashes at the thick steel ropes. The pain begins, a burning sensation in his lungs. A small alarm for the body, but it sends shockwaves of awareness ricocheting through his mind. The realization that he's going to die. The machine of his body yearns to breathe. The animal in him is released. His world centers around his chest, nothing else matters. The body cries for release from the agony. It begs for air. It doesn't know or care where he is, it just wants to breathe. His spirit cries in silence, knowing if he gives in to the temptation, he forfeits his life. Lungs battle the mouth for control. He willfully stifles the temptation to breathe. The silent war rages within him, between the will to live and the urge to breathe. A war no one else will ever know. A great emptiness pulls him from the inside. The unquenched yearning grabs his body and ties him in a knot. He spasms and convulses, banging his forehead. Death shakes him like a rag doll, wrenching the life out of him. He dies alone in the darkness. Removal of infused nitrogen commencing. Removal of carbon dioxide commencing. Evacuation route undetermined. <coughs> Emergency backup support not listed. What happened? Operator died for 55 seconds. Operator has been revived. Where did this helmet come from? The hood retracts and is stored in the collar. Oh, that would have been handy to know before I drowned. Are there any lights here that can help me see? Visor display activated. Active and passive scanners online. A series of graphs and indicators come to life in his field of vision. They appear to hover about three feet in front of him and move everywhere he turns his head. He reaches out an arm. His arm passes through one of the displayed graphs. Each corner of his field of vision has different information like temperature, pressure, and power reserve. Suit, how long will the air last? Nitrogen is recycled. Oxygen is extracted from the water continuously. A 15-minute reserve tank is available. And power? At current consumption rate, unlimited power is available from the flux gate and storage. You're sure I have enough air? Affirmative. A and you're positive there's enough power? Affirmative. You ever do this before? Error. Restate question. Great. So how do you know we're okay? Currently operating within normal parameters. This isn't so bad. I'm warm. I think I have air and power. All right, this should give me time. All I need now is to find a way out of here. How do I control this thing? Focus on menu items in the display and blink to make selections. 
He checks the suit graphs. Every status indicator shows that the suit is in prime condition, ready for anything. The only readouts not at optimum are his own. Blood pressure, serum glucose levels, temperature, regulatory hormones. All these indicators float in yellow and red zones, above or below their optimum range. He shakes his head with disdain and centers himself. Vision enhancement enabled. The brightness of the heads-up display blinds him momentarily. The near-dark elevator shaft begins to glow it's as if someone were slowly turning on the house lights. For the first time, things are bright as day. He can easily see every detail around him. Augmented reality system online. Suddenly, his perspective recedes from his head, looking down on his own form in a strange out-of-body experience. Wait, what just happened? How can I see like this? Sensors collect environment data. The data is fed into a three-dimensional vision system that recreates a simulation of the actual environment. This simulated version can be manipulated and viewed from any angle in real time and is stored for later review. With his new perspective, he can see a particular cable that's hanging him up from behind. Slightly disoriented at first, he figures out which way to move. He twists his torso and pops free. He escapes his death trap, then stands up on the wreckage of the elevator at the bottom of its shaft. He can easily see the cabling that killed him. He victoriously kicks him away from him. He looks up the elevator shaft. Buoyancy compensator inflated. The backpack of the suit expands until he floats slowly upwards. A service ladder on one side guides him upwards. The visor makes the shaft glow with an unearthly light. He looks back down at the bottom of the shaft. It's black at first. Then the visual system checkerboards in, showing him what he would see if he could see. He looks for another door in the shaft, but only sees cement walls. Hundreds of feet of cement walls. The lab was at the bottom of a great hole. He breaks the surface of the water. Claustrophobic walls continue to surround him on four sides. There are no other doors or openings. He floats for a second on the water and spins around. The shaft continues up in the darkness. An indicator shows the air to be breathable. He retracts the helmet, but leaves the visor in place. The air is rusty and wet. The upward walls glisten with moldy water. He looks up at the seemingly never-ending shaft. The suit augments the blackness and shows the top to be another 200 feet. He tests one rung, then another. It seems to hold his weight. Climbing is surprisingly easy. The suit augments his strength. He makes it to the top of the elevator shaft. The only other elevator doors in the shaft are open and next to the ladder. This level is blocked off with rubble. Overhead, the remains of elevator equipment dangle precariously. 
The ladder continues up another 20 feet in a small crawlway. At the top of the crawlway is a hatch. He heads up to it. The hatch has a small latch on it. With a triumphant shove, he flings the hatch all the way over and open. Dirt and bright daylight pour through the opening. He works his torso up through the hatch and leans forward. The rest of his body flops out in an awkward somersault. He backs up against the hatch in a daze, letting the nausea settle a bit. Without thinking, he reaches up and manually retracts the visor. Hot desert wind blasts his face, sucking the water out of his skin. Blazing sun on the horizon. A trickle of sweat already starting to bead by his ear. He wonders if the sweat is from the sun or his own fever. The sun's so bright it rings his ears. He keeps one eye closed and squints through the other. He uses one arm to prop him up and the other to shield his eyes. The lower half of his world colored light tan, the upper blue. He looks straight up through the thin, hot atmosphere to see the sky a deep blue, almost black, like he could just reach up and touch space. When his pupils finish adjusting to the light, he makes out details in his surroundings. The hatch is on the slope of a crater. Mild breeze chills his head and blows the occasional bit of sand into his eyes. He notices the temperature in the suit adjusting to its new surroundings. Where it used to add heat, it's now gently cool. It comforts him. Okay. The crater is devoid of life. A giant gouge in the land hundreds of feet across. He thinks himself lucky that the center of the crater didn't match up to the underground lab. He reaches down and scoops up a handful of sand, then pours it aside, wiping his hand on the thigh of the environment suit. He rests his head back against the hatch frame and thinks of the shaft on the other side. From the surface, no one would ever know a 30-story elevator was underfoot. He sits in the middle of utter desolation. He pulls his knees up and wraps his elbows around them. He examines his armored arms in the stark light of day. Without the suit, he never would have made it out of there. He loves it and hates it at the same time. He loves that it saved him. He hates that it had to. So many unanswered questions. He shakes his head at the madness and rubs his bruised forehead with gritty gauntlet fingers. He feels the slight buzz of a narcotic clouding his thinking and taking an edge off the pains. Visor, on. Is there a radio in this thing? The visor goes black. No. He startles for a moment, thinking it's broken. Then an indicator shows the visor to be calibrating. 
It picks up microwave energy from the Big Bang and cosmic rays from the sun and infrared heat reflected off the desert sand. As signals are determined, small icons representing the signals pop up in one corner of the display. He realizes that his regular eyes can only see a tiny slice of the spectrum, but this suit can see everything. He hears nothing from mankind. No GPS satellites, no shortwave radio, nothing, only static. He wonders what that means. Exploring the suit's visor display, he discovers a particularly useful setting. Using background radiation to see right through the ground. Now, in this new perspective, he's sitting in the middle of a large ghost rectangle that was once the foundation of a sturdy building. The remnants long gone. A translucent topological map appears in his visor. The map clearly shows the depression of the crater, then zooms up to show the surrounding land. There are two blinking icons on the map, one that represents him and another to the southwest. He turns until he's facing in the direction of the signal. He looks up at the blazing sun. The visor conveniently blots it out, protecting his eyes. The second blinking icon mesmerizes him. He wonders what it is and what it represents. What are you? The crater looks small on the map. The second blip seems pretty far off. The display shows a measurement. The blip is 213 kilometers away. He considers his options. He can sit here and continue baking in the sun or go back to the elevator shaft. Neither appeals to him. He closes his eyes and takes a moment to center himself. He decides to go for a walk. Even with the assist from the suit, standing is tiring. He likes the utility of the visor, but chooses to leave the helmet retracted. He chooses an auto-navigation option. A more or less straight green path connects the two blips. Then the map rotates and zooms in until it overlays his real-world view. Looking to the southwest, a glowing green path appears in his view. It's enough to see, but it doesn't overwhelm the image. The path looks like a custom green carpet about three feet wide, made just for him. Let's go. <clears throat> he steps down the slope of the crater and follows the path. The suit moves him effortlessly. Another indicator shows his estimated time of arrival. At this speed, it will be days before he gets to the second blip. He starts taking little two-step hops, letting the suit absorb the blows until he makes it to the bottom of the crater. He feels like a pepper grain in a huge salad bowl. He climbs up the far side of the crater, the machine legs pumping the ground effortlessly. 
lifting him like an escalator. He stands at the crater brim and takes a moment to feel its immensity. The visor shows him bits of man-made concrete and metal scattered around the crater in every direction. The radiation gauges all read safe. It wasn't a nuclear explosion, but something enormous happened here. It would take tons of explosives to create a crater this big. With the visor, he zooms his view a few feet up and behind him. He can see himself from a third-person perspective, standing on the see-through green carpet. The green path goes down a gentle debris slope and winds its way across a great empty plain of low hills over the horizon to the southwest. He starts a small jog. The ETA drops in half. This feels good. This is great. Good. The green virtual path is more or less straight up close. In the distance, the path flickers from time to time. The suit appears to adjust the best path information on the fly. He picks up speed a little bit. The suit does all the work. The sun drops behind low hills on the western horizon, casting long shadows and making clouds pink. He jogs across the open plain. Small clumps of vegetation litter the landscape. It's encouraging to see some life out here. If that can survive, then maybe he can too. Suit gauges all read good. The outer skin has a life of its own. It balances by itself. Somehow it knows where to place each step. He runs over low foothills down into a larger plain, flat as far as he can see. The land offers a series of small wind-blown ridges. Up and down he rises and falls hypnotically with the terrain. The earth has its own language of textures and hardness, wet and dry. Ideas fill his mind, the names of different kinds of soil. He looks at the sky and knows the names of the different strata and their clouds. He understands the math of the gravity that pulls him down and keeps things in orbit. Like a waterfall washing away sand, the world is becoming familiar again to him.
He starts to understand his world, but not his place in it. The ghost map keeps him on course. Jog mode activated. He runs through the night. Auto balance online. Obstacle avoidance online. Auto navigation online. Waste reprocessor online. Flux collectors online. Atmospheric water extractor online. Feeling good, suit. Feeling good. Night vision. LiDAR vision. Radar vision. Huh. Infravision. Ultravision online. Nice. Double time available. Hit it. Double time enabled. Here we go. Here's the other blinking icon in the early morning twilight. He drops into a valley surrounded by low hills. The blinking icon on his map corresponds to a geologic formation more or less in the center of the valley. The decaying structures of an abandoned airfield maintain a silent vigil on the plateau. Odd-shaped bushes populate the valley. He focuses on one of them. The visor zooms in at a thousand times resolution, then filters remove the shimmer of hot desert breezes. At first, the images resolve to a heap of clothing and sticks. Then he realizes the sticks are bones. Oh. The heaps are scattered across the plain randomly. A convoy of burned trucks and a tracked bulldozer among the piles. Animal carcasses too. Countless piles dot the landscape. This is a valley of death. Proximity alert. The visor detects movement on the plateau and zooms in. Something is moving fast among the hangars. The visor can't keep a lock on it. It comes down the hill on an angle directly towards him, dodging randomly left and right. He backs away and considers running back the way he came, but dares not turn his back. There's no way to outrun that thing. How many piles of those bones had tried to run? But standing here, waiting for the thing to kill him is no plan either. He hops on his toes, clenching his fists, looking for a way out.
Searcher and Stallion of Dreams and Wings, page two. Searcher was read by Paul Kiernan. Suit voice by Madeline Gilbert. Original music by Kendall Jackman. Sound design and editing by Garth Steck. Written, directed, and narrated by Scott Howard. Executive producers, Scott Howard, Garth Steck, Kendall Jackman. This episode, copyright, Scott Howard Productions, 2009. If you enjoyed this episode of Searcher and Stallion or would like to fund the creation of more episodes, then please make a $1 payment at searcherandstallion.com and share with a friend. For more information about licensing this episode, go to searcherandstallion.com backslash licensing. Reproduction of this episode for commercial purposes without written consent is prohibited. And that was Searcher and Stallion, episode 204 of its origin story. Plenty more good listening at searcherandstallion.com. And now an interview with the series creator, Scott Howard. Great. Well, uh, welcome to Radio Drama Revival. Uh, today's guest is Scott Howard. Um, Scott's the author and creator of Searcher and Stallion, a science fiction serialized audio drama. Scott, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Fred. Uh, so we listeners by now have heard a little bit of Searcher and Stallion, but it is, of course, a, a, a serial. There's a lot more episodes in it. So do you want to just catch people up with the plot and tell them a little bit about what the story is about? You bet. Uh, you know, as you might know, Searcher awoke alone on a laboratory table with an ageless body and no knowledge of his past. Now in his exoscala-powered suit of armor, he roams the galaxy with his robotic companion stallion, seeking clues about his unknown origins. How f- how far is this? So we, um, at least through this round, there were fir- four episodes. Uh, how much of this universe have you explored or written up, or h- how how big is this is, is this in scope? You know what? It's actually frightening. Uh, I have uh, seven. I have outlines for seventy-five stories, and each story is could be between you know one and ten episodes if, you, if they're about a half hour apiece. And uh, and that's just the outlines. And then the the whole plot arc that takes the character you know from beginning to finish is about a hundred stories. So uh, we have plenty of work to do. Uh, sure, and, and tell us about that. Why the audio format? Uh, what, what's your background? What brought you into to doing this kind of serial? Uh, I, you know, I invented the, the characters uh, uh, in high school. Uh, we had a rule at my house. You had to go to bed at 9 o'clock. You didn't have to go to sleep, but you had to go to bed. So I uh, <laughs> went to bed at 9 o'clock, couldn't sleep, and uh, had my radio so I could you know listen to the radio and had my albums, so I could listen to my albums. And so pretty much every night... You know, after I went to bed, uh, I had my uh, electronic music albums by Tangerine Dream and uh, would, would listen to that music. And uh, just over time, I just created these characters. And I, you know, and I'd listen to the music and wonder, well, what would the characters be doing to this piece of music or that piece of music? And uh, over the years, I actually made a notebook of uh, different scenes set to different pieces of music that would listen to the music and, you know, revamp my scenes. So I had this uh, for 10 years. I had this notebook full of scenes and music. And uh, finally, uh, I was hosting a show on uh, KRCL 90.9 FM in Salt Lake City, playing electronic music by that time. And uh, uh, mentioned it to uh, some fans of the show. I said, you know what? I've got these characters. I want to make a little show. I want a show about 10 minutes long. 
that uh, we have an intro and outro, and uh, I'll pick a piece of music. I'll write like a paragraph of text with my characters. And then, you know, once a week we can do this little 10-minute show, and that's all it is. You know, three paragraphs, three songs, intro, outro, boom. Should take about half hour to produce. So I mentioned this to the group, and uh, the first thing out of their mouth was, uh, you know, Kendall, the, our musician, was, wow, you know, I could make music for that, Scott. And uh, uh, one of our friends there said, well, I've got a story. I, we, we could actually, I've got a story. We could revamp it. And so my original concept actually never happened. It, it, it immediately got stepped over for uh, this ongoing uh, radio format serial. Sure. And how, how long have you been at this? Because I, as I, I do recall... Uh, encountering some of those earlier episodes, then this, and then this is a you know a, you know an evolution in the sound uh, recording aspect of it. So yeah, how long have you been at this? Yeah, we did. Uh, golly, starting in the early '90s, we did uh, about 50 apps, and uh, really with every episode, there was a running gag. With every episode, we started out with, golly, me just reading on a mic on the radio, mixing CDs live, no sound effects. And then we progressed to, well, let's get Scott recording to reel-to-reel tape. Uh, you know, at least get that down. Um, but then still mixing live on the radio from the tape. Uh, and then we got a, a fellow who offered uh, sound effects on cassette. And he had, uh, he, uh, you know, I, for every episode... I'd say, okay, you know, I need an explosion here, I need a laser blast there, you know, make those, I need a door closing here, make those sound effects. So there's about 10 sound effects per, per episode. So give me the cassette, and his counter, he said, okay, counter 100 is an explosion, counter 200 is this, a counter 300 is that. Well, my counter on the, the station's cassette player was tuned different. So the first thing I had to go through was play his cassette and find out, well, when he says 100, it really means 150 in mine. And when he says 200, it really means 300 in mine. So at least I had the right spot. And, uh, uh, yeah, that was fun. Uh, mixing CDs and flying in sound effects off of cassette. <laughs> so your own, your own mini live show, yeah. Yes, yes. And uh, and so then we got yeah, yeah to where uh, uh, we had uh, dual digital audio tapes. So we could, I could record to one tape and then mix to the other tape. But we still had this uh, horrendous, nerve-wracking thirty-minute live mix. You know, man, you got to, you got to get it right. And more than once, my show is uh, Sunday nights, uh, ten thirty on Carousel, playing mostly electronic music. And uh, I'd be over at uh, Kendall's house Sunday afternoons. You know, we do a mix. Oh, we mess it up. Oh, we got to start over again. We do another mix. Oh, we mess it up. And uh, yeah, more, more than once, uh, I was racing to the station. To uh, to be on the air while Kendall was wrapping up one final mix to uh, to bring it over so that we could be late. But uh, but now we're all uh, well. It's the, golly, it's the 21st century. With uh, we use uh, Simple Audio Workstation is our digital editor, and it gives us like 72 tracks, and we use every last one of them. Yeah, that must be very luxurious compared to <laughs> mixing with whatever you've got for decks at this radio station. Yes. Oh, you want to talk about horror is back in those days, um, uh, I used uh, commercial CDs, you know, just my, my, my pile of music to, to, to add music to the show. And uh, uh, so, so I, you know, in my head, I had a list. I want, you know, it's track two from this album, track three from this album. And 
you've got 30 seconds, you're getting ready to pop in the disc, you open up the case and you realize you left the CD in the car or at home, whatever, it's not there. And you got 30 seconds to find something similar. You know, there's there's nothing quite like broadcast radio to to invigorate the, the, the urgency of, of those sorts of problems. Mm-hmm. That, uh, yep. But uh, in fact, now we spent golly, we spent so much time massaging to the you know to the infinite degree. You know exactly how loud is this sound effect going to be, and where is it going to go, and those things that uh, um, I, it makes for a more uh, luxurious experience. I think it's more rich. Um, but yeah, it certainly loses some of that uh, spontaneity. Yeah, and and so it sounds like you kind of you know kind of worked your way into audio drama just as a, an exploratory way. And so and yeah, so what is what is your background? Obviously, the, there's other work being produced out there. Um, what have you discovered? Uh, when I was in high school, and you know, I had to go to bed at nine o'clock, and you you know, you're flipping around the radio dial. It was 1979, and I discovered uh, Alien Worlds. Um, which, uh, if you're familiar with it, it's uh, oh, just just a fantastic, just a, a, an amazing. If, if those of you in the audience go find it, Alien Worlds, just a, a, an amazing piece of production. Uh, they've got a uh, number of stories, a uh, number of apps per story, and uh, just remarkably well done. So between that and uh, uh, I, I always liked uh, the Ruby series, uh, ZBS Ruby. Um, those episodes were like a minute and a half, two minutes. And you listen to one episode every day on the radio. And it came on a vinyl album. So if you can imagine having, you know, 30 tracks on an album and trying to find, make sure that you're on exactly the right track at 8 a.m. to play, you know, today's episode of Ruby. Um, so that was a bit of a challenge. But, uh, yeah, so so between Ruby, ZBS Ruby, and uh, Alien Worlds, uh, I can still hear in my head uh, the the announcer doing that. And so uh, you've been at this for a while, and you obviously have the nice advantage of of being on broadcast radio, having your own audience there in Salt Lake City. Um, how else have you been getting the word out? Obviously, you've you've encountered me through uh, the web. Um, how, how have you been finding the internet, and how are you getting the word out um, beyond just maybe your own local area? Right. The uh, in fact, we cheated for so many years. You know, me and my own, my own time slot on the radio, and then oh, I'll play my search and stallion during my time slot. We. Um, so yeah, so I have sort of a you know a teeny tiny cult following here in, in Salt Lake. Um, uh, with and in fact, I've had two generations of people come to me and say, when I was a kid, I used to listen to Searcher and Stallion on Sunday nights when I went to bed. <laughs> And so uh, one generation of that's plenty, but two generations? Okay, now that's, that's, that's kind of freaking me out now. So, yeah, so the first, uh, the, the first batch of stories we did in the 90s um, you know, were really for the Salt Lake market. And when we decided to pick it up again, because just we got to get these stories out, um, we, we said, you know what? Yes, the local audience is nice, but we're going to build this the new one for a, you know a nationwide audience, a worldwide audience that has never heard Search and Stallion before. So, in fact, we took the opportunity to uh, to do as they call a you know a reboot of the series, fresh start, clean slate, and uh, keep the things that we like and uh, cut out some of the things that uh, uh, were distasteful and uh, uh, move forward. Interesting. And so I've heard at least four episodes of the of the so-called reboot. 
um, are more available or more on the way? We're uh, uh, we're constantly in production. Every Saturday night is uh, production at uh, Searchingstein. So yep. we've got two stories uh, in the pipeline. We've got a story by uh, Brad R. Torgerson, uh, the seductress, um, searcher in a love interest, and um, and then Garth is working on a story. Um, it has a it has a name, Oslin, but uh, the genesis of it is uh, uh, Stallion gets to fight a uh, dragon. They're flying through the air fighting. So awesome, awesome! And people can uh, go visit searcherandstallion.com. Yep. And uh, yep, audio audio downloads, and you're making it uh, freely available. It looks like so people can just uh, come and listen to more and get hooked and uh, enjoy this. You know, really uh science fiction you know really richly realized science fiction adventure that's the hope it's uh you know we've uh at searchers town we've uh, we've tried to make it uh like say a rich luxurious experience so uh you know rather than just you know book on tape you know i could actually crank out tons of stuff if it was just book on tape but uh but you know what? I want the I want the narrator narrating. I want the actress acting. I want uh, the music uh, to reflect uh, the emotions of the characters. And of course, you know, if something explodes, I got to hear those sound effects. So, um, so yeah. So, Search and Stallion. Um, we we take a long time crafting each episode, but hopefully, it's a high quality product. When we're awesome. Done. Well, Scott, thanks so much. Real pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. And that was Scott Howard of Searcher and Stallion. Again, his website, searcherandstallion.com. Stallion like a horse, right? Okay. Uh, more audio podcast goodness will be coming next week. There are many audio serials out there. Um, I could hardly dream of featuring them all on the show. It would be a while before I would get through all that. I'm just going to feature uh, some of them and everybody I could get on hold to do an interview with. So I uh, can't wait that long. Do check out our blog and podcast at radiodramarevival.com. They've got often promised news, reviews, and discussion up there. You can always find us on iTunes as well. Search for Radio Drama Revival. That, however, wraps it up for this week. Radio Drama Revival is produced by yours truly, Fred Greenhalge. Copyright of individual shows remains their original producers, but do please share this show as far and widely as you'd like. Radio Drama Revival originates an on-air radio at WMPG-FM and Greater Portland, Maine's Community Radio. It is podcast at radiodramarevival.com and the labor of love. Till next time, keep your mind and your ears open. Thanks for tuning in and have a great week.